Good morning. Walking into St. Bartholomew the Great's church in Smithfield, one is immediately arrested. On a stool stands an imposing golden sculpture of the building's namesake, Bartholomew, the disciple and apostle of Jesus. One first wonders what such a horror is doing in this sacred space. A statue of a muscularly defined, perfectly proportioned man bearing a garment like mass draped over an uplifted arm. Fully naked. His hand clasps a sharp instrument, a knife, the instrument of his torture. According to tradition, Bartholomew is said to have been flayed alive for destroying pagan idols. After serving as a missionary in India, Armenia, and elsewhere, a savage king had his skin pulled off. Bartholomew, however, remained steadfastly alive and joyful before Christ, and he went up to heaven as a victor when at the end his head was cut off. The uplifted arm of his statue directs the observer further down the corridor to a canvas portrait of a heavy-headed subject slumping on a wooden cross, the instrument of his torture. No shroud, no covering, no garment draped anywhere. Golgotha, the place of the skull where our Savior died. Down the corridor from the sculpture of St. Bartholomew, one is arrested once again, this time by canvas, Richard Harrison's Golgotha. He describes his work as follows. In tackling the subject of the crucifixion, I wanted to focus on the isolated figure of Jesus Christ. It was essential to convey the suffering and humiliation that he endured and the despair that he felt. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Traditionally, Christ is depicted wearing a loincloth, but the Romans were far more likely to have crucified him naked in an attempt to humiliate, degrade, and shame him. The black and red background of the canvas, sliced through by a parched chasm or dried-up riverbed, emphasizes the desolate and desperate nature the situation in which Christ finds himself and echoes the sense of impending doom. While both subjects are unclothed, it is most fitting that only Jesus is clothed in flesh. The mass draped over Bartholomew's arm is nothing other than his own skin. His golden arm willingly holds out his flesh, knowing that further down the corridor hangs the one who was able to wear it most fully and most perfectly. The Son of God is the only one who could take on flesh, be tempted in every way, yet remain without sin. He is the only one who could pick up the coarse garment of humanity and not only wear it, but embody it perfectly. By his fleshly death on the cross, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Certainly, we would not want it any other way. When we stop to observe the bare, crucified Son of God on the cross, we feel his public shame, mockery, torture, suffering. We witness the embodiment of our sin that only he could bear. We cannot incarnate what Jesus incarnated, not in his birth, 
not on the cross, nor do we wish to. Once for all time did he offer up his body as a living sacrifice so that we might be sanctified, so that we might be dedicated to God's holy purposes. Only this man can offer a single sacrifice forever and then sit down at the right hand of God. He is fully God and fully man. Truly God and truly man. God, truly human. God, truly human. God, truly human. We confess that in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, it is truly the Son of God who became a man. He is fully divine. We confess that it is truly man that the Son of God is. Jesus is completely and authentically human, like you and I. The Son of God truly is man. Jesus is the Son of God existing as a man, the person of the Son and humanity in perfect unity. How can such a mystery not disrupt the mundane? Though he was the one through whom the worlds were created, he would enter creation in the form of a man, disrupting the flow of human history in the happiest of ways. His fleshly presence changes everything. The Son of God lived incarnationally, and things have not been the same. Thus, when the Apostle Paul addresses the first church in Europe, the church at Philippi, on the topic of unity, he cannot help but be reminded of and reproduce for them a hymn of the faith which draws on the incarnation. How should we conduct ourselves in the world? How should we think among ourselves? Paul cites, or perhaps even creates... Christian art to express this, a poem to begin to answer this question. This is how you should think among yourselves, with the mind that you have because you belong to Messiah Jesus, who though in God's form did not regard his equality with God as something he ought to exploit. Instead, he emptied himself, received the form of a slave being born in the likeness of humans, and then having human appearance, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death. Yes, even the death of the cross. And so God has greatly exalted him, and to him in his favor has given him the name which is above all names. That now at the name of Jesus, every knee within heaven shall bow, on earth too, and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord." to the glory of God the Father. This changes everything. The first half of this poem describes the descent of the one who was always in God's form, always equal with God, but who humbled himself to become human and to die the death of a disgraced slave. The second half describes his exaltation as Lord, owning the name above all names. His incarnation, taking on flesh, is necessarily prior to his exaltation. From incarnation to exaltation, he passes through the valley of suffering, humiliation, and death. Descending precedes ascending. 
going down before going up. He is lifted up as a baby before being lifted up on the cross. Laid down in a tomb before being lifted up to the right hand of the Father. In this, he pioneers a path for us to lay down our hearts of stone and pick up hearts of flesh, to lay down ourselves and put on Christ, to lift up tools of our torture to point to the one who is the instrument of redemption, to hold out our former selves on uplifted hand and point to the one by whom all things hold together. Paul's letter to the Philippians arrests us. This short letter leaves us to work out what all of this means. On the heels of his Christ hymn, Paul exhorts us to continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence for the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. What a mystery. The same God who was at work in Jesus to bring about our salvation is now at work in us to continue to bring about our salvation, all for the sake of his good pleasure, because he wants to. We must, therefore, think with the mind that we have because we belong to Jesus, if we do, in fact, belong to him. We belong to him if we've been united to him by faith. It is by faith that we are united to the Messiah in whom we have life. As the prophet Habakkuk revealed, and Paul wrote to the church at Rome and those in Galatia, modern-day Turkey, as well as the author of the letter to the Hebrews, the just will live by faith. The way that one lives as God intended is by living a life of faith. Faith in God as the one who justifies the ungodly, the one who take, has taken our sin, our shame, and nailed it to the cross. He declares those who are united to him by faith in the right. You see, God is in the process of putting his good creation to rights. He has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Where is the curse found? Where is the curse not found? Where do we not see the decaying effects of self-seeking rather than self-giving? God is the God of self-giving. He made himself man so that he could make a new creation out of you. So that his, his new creation would come to life in your mortal body. If anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. God's recreative work has been birthed in you. We are his workmanship. Where we were previously short-circuited to circle back on ourselves and our own desires, he has rewired us to align our desires with his. He is at work to bring his, he is at work in you to bring his new creation, to make his blessings flow. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. The question is, Will we, once made new, clothed in faith, clothed in righteousness, put on daily the mind of Christ to show that we belong to him? God the Son became man as a supreme act of self-giving love. He emptied himself for us so that we could be full. Will we in turn use this as something to be exploited for our own benefit? 
May it never be. We will pour ourselves out, taking on the form of servants. The goal, you see, is unity. Unity of creation with God's creative purposes. Unity of God with his people. Unity of God's new creation. Walking, thinking, acting, loving with, in accordance with God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and revealed on the pages of Scripture. This is where we find, as Paul says in his closing remarks to the church at Philippi, strength for everything. It is through the one who gives us power and not of ourselves. As Paul could say to the, the churches of Galatia, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith. Indeed, by the faithfulness of God's Son, who loved me and gave himself for me. Belonging to him means learning to think differently, act differently, living a life of self-giving, looking out not for our own interests, but for those of others, walking by faith and not by sight. What then is faith? Faith is the reality of what we hope for, the proof of what we don't see. It's what gives us conviction about things we can't see. It's what the men and women of old were famous for. By faith, we understand that the universe has been created by a word from God so that the visible came into existence from the invisible. In faith, we confess. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. And was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. In his book, on the Incarnation, the 4th century Christian writer Athanasius cites as the greatest proof of Jesus' resurrection and the reality of his incarnation, the fact that Christians put on faith. The greatest proof of Jesus' incarnation is that Christians put on faith. The way to live incarnationally is to live with the faith that the men and women of old were famous for. Faith, faith that stands in defiance to the world's most hellish horrors. Athanasius writes that death has been dissolved and the cross has become victory over it, and it is no longer strong, but is truly dead, a sure proof of this is that death is despised by all Christ's disciples. And everyone tramples on it, and no longer fears it, but with the sign of the cross and faith in Christ, tread it underfoot as something dead. Of old, before the divine sojourn of the Savior, all used to weep for those who were dying as if they were perishing." 
But since the Savior's raising the body, no longer is death something to be afraid of. But all believers in Christ tread on it as nothing and would rather choose to die than deny their faith in Christ. For they really know that when they die, they are not destroyed, but both live and become become incorruptible through the resurrection. The proof of this is that human beings, before believing in Christ, view death as something fearsome and are terrified at it. But when they come to faith in Christ and to his teaching, they so despise death that they eagerly rush to it and become witnesses to the resurrection of it, resurrection of it affected by the Savior. Death also, having been conquered and placarded by the Savior on the cross and bound hand and foot, all those in Christ who pass by trample on death. And with Christ mock at death, jeering at it, saying, Where is your sting? Where is your victory? Close, closer inspection of Damien Hirst's statue of St. Bartholomew reveals that the instrument in his hand is not, in fact, the one with which he was tortured, a knife, but it's a scalpel, an instrument of healing. His body itself, the statue's body, is based on an anatomical model from the hospital across the street. The uplifted scalpel directs our attention across the street to Britain's oldest hospital, the world-renowned St. Bartholomew's Hospital. The instrument of torture has been transformed into an instrument of peace. Its transformation signals the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven, which pushes back against all that is opposed to human flourishing, sickness, disease, human suffering. Bartholomew can hold his skin in his hands because Jesus took his skin on him. God the Son put on flesh, offering himself as a servant, so that we can put on faith, though our flesh be removed. If you were raised with Christ, look for the things that are above where Christ is sitting at God's right side. Think about the things above and not on the things on earth. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ. Knowing that our life is hidden in Christ, we set our minds on the things above, the uplifted scalpel becomes an offering to God of one's talents and abilities by faith. Both St. Bart's Hospital and the church take their name from the disciple of Jesus by the same name. Bartholomew is said to have appeared to a 12th century Anglo-Norman pilgrim named Rachel, who had fallen ill and miraculously recovered while on pilgrimage to Rome. It is said that as he lay delirious, he prayed for his life vowing that if he survived, he would set up a hospital for the poor in London. His prayers were answered and he recovered. As he turned for home, the vision of St. Bartholomew appeared to him and said, I'm Bartholomew. I've come to help you in your troubles. I have chosen a spot in a suburb of London at Smithfield where in my name you should found a church. How might we live out the mystery of God putting on flesh? Where do instruments of torture need transformed into instruments of peace and redemption? The mystery is revealed by seeing more than is before our eyes. The mystery is revealed by reflecting with the eyes of faith. Consider once again Damien Hirst's uh, statue of St. Bartholomew called Exquisite Pain. 
the exposed Bartholomew holding his own skin over his arm. Fleshly eyes see a man disrobed of dignity, exposed without the body's largest natural organ to cover him, skin. The eyes of faith, however, see a man fully clothed. The eyes of faith see more than meets the eye. He who is by all appearances naked is in fact fully clothed. Hidden in Christ, clothed in righteousness, we cannot be unclothed. We have heeded Paul's exhortation to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. With the eyes of faith, when we consider the statue of St. Bart, when we look at St. Bart, we experience something of the incarnation. When we see portraits of Jesus hanging on the cross, we experience something of God the Son. We see his humanity laid bare. In the carnation, God is revealed to us in ways that could be, a, could be revealed in no other way. The word was spoken to creation at creation to evoke a response from creation. This word has become human, has become the response, becoming the one human in whose life a fitting response and correspondence to God speaking may be seen. We live out the mystery of the incarnation by putting on faith. Jesus could bear the cross. Bartholomew could bear torture. Raher could bear his illness, recover, and found a hospital to serve others. What will the garment of our faith resemble? This last week, my grandmother Irene passed away at the age of 93. She was the kind of person who would not hesitate to talk to any stranger at any time or in any place. This is my grandson. I pray for him every day. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Checking out at the supermarket, at the store, anywhere. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. This is my grandson. I pray for him every day. Having breakfast at their house was consistently marked by a dedicated prayer time wherein she and my grandfather would pray for each of their children, their spouses, their grandchildren, their spouses, and their great-grandchildren by name. Praying was part of her first meal of the day, feeding on fellowship with God. Her prayers would rise before him every morning, a holy offering as sweet-smelling as any incense. On her deathbed, some of her last words were, I see Jesus, and he is beautiful. With the eyes of faith, her holy imagination saw more than meets the eye, and it was beautiful. He who was brutally exposed on the cross, she saw now fully wrapped in light. Indeed, holy imagination sees more, hears more than is ordinarily presented to the eyes and ears. With the eyes of faith, we are equipped to behold what some have termed poetic presence. We walk by faith, not by sight. And it is beautiful, for he is beautiful. With the eyes of faith, my grandmother saw more than with just earthly faculties. 
By faith, she experienced a poetic presence at life's end, a presence easing life's transition from this one to the next, the presence of an incarnate, God-made man, resurrected, ascended Savior, her pioneer, her forerunner. She is testimony to Athanasius' now centuries-old claim that death has been dissolved. Those who put on faith in the risen Christ neither fear nor flee before it, but tread on it as nothing. We count St. Irene among the saints of God who have been received into his presence. Visiting Great St. Bart's medieval church in London presents a marked contrast between the ancient and the modern of our faith. Housed within its medieval architecture are contemporary interpretations, incarnations, if you will, of the faith that has been confessed within its walls for over a millennium. Exiting, we are challenged to extend the continuous thread of faith spun and extended generation after generation by serving those, by serving Extended generation and generation by serving. The one who exits extends that ministry outside the walls and into this city of London. The faith is carried forward from stagnant stones by living stones to living stones. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. The faithfulness of Jesus cascades down to the faith of the first apostles, like Bartholomew. The apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, saw to it that the gospel made its way over boundaries, both geographic and ethnic. Something then happened in the 12th century to a man named Raher, which, not unlike his savior, caused him to renounce a life as an advisor in the royal court of King Henry I and dedicate himself to founding and operating a church and a hospital, the firsts in London. Centuries later, that faith would make its way down through the generations to a young Irene in Indiana who would make it her life's ambition to love and serve her savior. She would raise her daughter with that faith, and her daughter would do the same for her son. In 2021, that son would visit Smithfield for a concert and be arrested by an ancient faith. God, truly human. God, truly human. God, truly human. Because God held our humanity... We can stand in faith declaring, you can kill my body, you can remove my skin. I do not fear those who can kill only the body. My life has been hidden in Christ on high. I am clothed in righteousness. Why? Because Jesus has finished the course ahead of us. In the incarnation, Jesus became a perfect human being. As God in human flesh, he suffered the divine penalty for sin as an innocent substitute. Being both God and man, Jesus simultaneously revealed God's will for human life and reconciled sinful people to God through his perfect life and death. Because of the incarnation, therefore, those who believe in Christ have peace with God and new life from God. He put on flesh so that we can put on faith. <laughs>